Hey, welcome to System Shift, the podcast that explores new ideas and thinking for a sustainable economic future that prioritizes the health of the planet and the well-being of all people, not just a select few. Today, we're excited to welcome Eva von Redeker, a critical theorist and feminist philosopher who is doing groundbreaking work in the field of economic and political philosophy. Eva is a researcher at the University of Verona, where she focuses on critical theory, political philosophy and feminist theory. Her work is concerned with the fundamental questions of power and inequality and how they are perpetuated by the current economic system. She's also interested in exploring alternative economic systems that prioritize the ecological sustainability and social justice. Her work offers insights into how we can begin to change the current economic system, build something new in its place. She argues that the current economic system is built on the foundation of patriarchy and we need to dismantle this system in order to build a more just and sustainable world. Her work on feminist economics challenges us to rethink our assumptions about work, value and care and prioritize the needs of the most vulnerable in our society. Eva sees the world as being a process of developing planetary ecology with the question of life being paramount. She writes about the revolution of the purpose of life and how we can reorganize our daily habits to save life rather than continuing to destroy it. Her vision is for capitalism's wheels of fortune to be replaced by a round blue planet inhabited by people who can determine their own direction of travel within its boundaries. Her work challenges us to reimagine our view on property rights and the economic system and how to build something that is truly sustainable and just. She reminds us that the current economic system is not inevitable and we have the power to create something better. So, without further ado, a warm welcome to you, Eva. Hello, thank you so much for having me. Yeah, I think we can have an interesting chat about uh, different topics. But when we talked a little bit now, you mentioned you actually just yesterday <laughs> delivered a book script. So tell us a little bit about this new thing you're going to do. Oh my God, yes, quite a delivery. That's going to be a, a small book about freedom because I just found it somehow totally unbearable that with our current concept of freedom, it seems you can build motorways, but you can't preserve the world. And the fact that the loss of certain very narrow privileges cuts into freedom, but the loss of the world doesn't, like I found that, I, I thought it can't be true. Like, And I also don't want to part with that term. So it's an attempt to develop an ecological notion of freedom, which I think has to be temporal. So it's freedom in time and freedom of having time and freedom, freedom of having time that regenerates you. So that's what nature does, right? You have time where something lives and it allows something else also to live. So I call that freedom to stay, to oppose it to freedom of movement and also, may, I guess, to provoke a bit. So that's what the book's about. And now I have forgotten everything about it because it's written down and I mustn't think of it because I can't change anything anymore. But that actually sounds really interesting. And um, the same goes actually for biodiversity. It really needs yeah. space and time to develop and prosper. Yeah, it's actually the last um, chapter is about biodiversity, especially of soil. It's partly based on George Monbiot's new book. And I have this um, idea about that the best way, if you want to have a philosophical abstract term to talk about nature, actually time is a very good category because all of nature is certain regenerative cycles. So it's a sort of cyclical time where something 
reproduces itself over and over again, certain species, and you have very different lengths of like, you know, some mountains that have been there for 4 million years. And then you have trees that are there for 300 years. And all of that is time. And we need to learn to read and understand that time that we're often destroying and appending without even knowing like what it is, you know, what's the, that, like that is so much inbuilt in the essence of those things. Soil is an interesting thing. It's, it's an underappreciated microcosmos of life. It's amazing. I mean, so I grew up on a, on an organic farm, right? So I grew up working the soil and um, also my sister studied agriculture. She knows much more about this stuff than I do, probably stealing some of it, but she like, the way that the best way to think about soil is not stuff like a heap of sand or something. It's actually a structure that was built by living beings. Like, for instance, if you have a wasp's nest, it's kind of all, it's a super complex structure built from the excrements of that insect. And that's just one insect. But soil, under one meter of soil, you have like thousands and thousands of species cooperating together to build that thing that then allows to pass the nutrients from indeed the sun and the um, rotted material to the roots of the plants. And without that, there would be like nothing we could ever eat. <laughs> that brings us actually to another interesting aspect of your work. And that's kind of the view of property and value. Yeah. So if we continue <laughs> with the soil analogy. So today, if you value a farmer's work on the world market is the like the kilograms of something produced per acre. And you, if you just put a lot of pesticides and kill all this soil life or much of it, you can see that, oh, this is a productive farm. I get a lot yeah. of kilogram output. But this destruction of, of property or the destruction of the soil is not considered in the equation. Yeah, no, not at all. I guess I want to just say one thing about the farmer on the market. Of course, in Europe, it's also not even just that that kind of nicely capitalist evil where it's just the price that determines how they treat the land there is a we um, spend a lot of taxpayers money on the way that agriculture is done otherwise it wouldn't be profitable and even though that's the case it's not regulated to be really ecologically sustainable so that's spectacular but i think to, to get to the heart of modern and also capitalist treatment of the world as large we can actually stay with the soil because in order to use something at um, maximum short-term productivity capacity. You need to make it... Mm, so what philosophers, Hegelian philosophers, sorry to bring up that old guy, call abstract, means you take one thing and take it out of its context. So really in the original meaning of abstractions, you, you take something out. Maybe a more normal word would be to say you extract it. You need to sort of extract, for instance, all the nutrients at a very fast pace out of the soil and just take the vegetables away or the soybeans and, and not return anything to the soil. But a lot of what my work is about is to say that that's not something that can sort of automatically happen. It's not like the, the, the land lies there for you to just grab and extract. You need to make it usable or, or disposable in that way. And the the key driver in modernity for making things digestible to capitalism is property. Because modern property has a very specific shape that no other society, also not pre-modern Western societies, ever came up with. Not even Roman law, but that's a rabbit hole we might not go into. There's a debate about that. And the idea about modern property is you can do whatever you want with it. So 
it's an object that is like totally at your at your disposal, at your mercy. It's a it's something that you can treat at will, and you don't have to justify. If it's yours, you will not have to justify it to anyone. You can do it. It's also great, right? There are some things with which we might want to have that freedom. Soil is definitely not something that should be part of it. So, and in order for you to have that total control, you of course need to know where it starts and ends, right? Because it's clear you don't have that over the whole world. So I always explain um, the system we live in with kind of knives or two cuts and property is the first knife. And that knife always, it's kind of cuts in a circle. It cuts out a thing from its surroundings so that you can say, okay, that piece of land is yours and now you can do what you want with it. And you can break through all those metabolisms, all the natural cycles, all the way that that piece of land is embedded in the entire ecosystem of the planet, you can just treat that as if it doesn't exist. So that's the first cut. You just think it's like a you know a cookie cutter, like you just chuck, um, <laughs> um, get get a piece out as if it was separate, and then you start treating it as separate, and then it does get isolated. So of course, how we treat ourselves, right? That's an individual. A piece like you cut, you cut a circle around it. it you belong to yourself, but everything else is um, kind of cut through. And then capitalism, of course, doesn't just give people ownership the whole thing is driven by seeking profit and that's as it were now comes the knife and slashes the thing through in the middle because you want to sell something for profit that's a commodity so that's the one half that you then kind of try to get rid of for money but there's always and classic marxist theories of capitalism i think don't appreciate that enough there's always another half that you discard like you always kind of whatever you own you split it into, if you are a capitalist who wants to sell stuff, you always split it into that that's valuable and that that you treat as if it wasn't there. For instance, emissions, right? Everything, every production process produces waste, debris, and also in the last 200 years, emissions, so CO2. And that's just treated as if it wasn't there. And that's the other magic that property allows you to do. You can just say like, oh, I either sell it or I dump it. It's not mine anymore. And that's not something that you can do with kind of, it's not natural that you could do that with objects. So if you think you live in a like shared flat or in a family and there's a torn and rotten t-shirt that somebody left on the sofa, and then you're like, can you please like um, tidy your junk? And then your flatmate goes, oh no, I donated to you. It's yours now. It's not my junk anymore. Like you couldn't do that. It would be absurd, but that's how our economy runs overall. And it's, it's permitted by this function of um, property that you can control, but also discard it. But also, like this logic of even when you want to get rid of something, in many jurisdictions, you're actually not allowed to do dumpster diving to pick up something, because even when you'd consider it as trash, it's still yours. Yes, exactly. And it mustn't undermine this capitalist principle that you are cut off from any ways of sustaining yourself apart from the market. So it's part of keeping a, like alive that dependency that you need to go to the supermarket and then rather buy some trash, like something, well, trash, but some trash with a price tag on, rather than just show in a way that there is so much affluence in our societies that could be used so that you could more effortlessly, definitely without cash, access it. So I think that's one of the anxieties. And yes, of course, with the waste, because it, it's still yours in the control sense, but it's not yours often, I mean, obviously we now have some regulations, but the fact that they are necessary shows that the default paradigm is 
total unaccountability. And then, you know, if you're happy and lucky and you have a government that sets some regulations, you also cannot dump everything into every river anymore. Of course not. But that needs to be specified. So um, you can always look for the, like, if you want to make money for the loophole that still exists so that you can, in another way, way reduce your cost. Because that's what capitalist companies have to do. They have to reduce their cost, no matter how well-wishing they they are and how they would like to be careful and sort of not dump things they will then probably be outcompeted by somebody else who manages to produce the same stuff cheaper. So that's this this kind of systemic character that drives the whole engine. And with the food waste, it is interesting that this is not waste that is just discarded into like oblivion, like the emissions, but that is still protected in some ways against theft eventually. I don't even know the exact recycling or rather non-recycling chain of it, how but I mean, a lot of that food for starters is plastic wrapped and that will end up somewhere where it's not doing good to the environment. Like this stuff doesn't disappear. That's the thing. If you look from the perspective of value, then the trash has no, it, it's just kind of non-existence. You just discard it from the view of those um, cycles that we talked before, those, I call them tides. So the metabolistic cycles of the biosphere of all of life, then of course, the plastic is there. The rotten food is there. And it's also not good for some animals that feed on it. Then there is the wrapping that is there, the microplastic that gets washed around eventually is everywhere. I just had that very recent study that now it's an all human milk and all rain. So it stays around and it has effects long after you can tell who the owner is, who you could hold accountable. And even that, what does it help? I mean, there's nothing that one rich bastard could do to um, fix the problems that we now have as part of the tragedy we're in. Maybe not even a kind rich person would be able to do it. But but uh, that's, I, no, I'm wondering... and I think some kind pe- rich people even would like wanna would like to try. And it's it's just like it's beyond the power. And I, I, I want to just jump in there because I think it's such an important difference to the classical outlook of a Marxist promise of revolution where what you have to redistribute is riches. And you think that the means of production, so factories or platforms, should be owned collectively so that they can be democratically controlled. But that's that's wealth, right? But we now live in a world where there's so much waste and even toxic substances that also need to be, well, redistributed or rather kind of dealt with in a responsible manner that need to be, like, we need to somehow readopt that stuff as well. I'm wondering when you talk about like the negative aspects of the freedom of property rights, is it enough, would it be enough to regulate and control and set demands on owners of property or do we need a different conceptual logic to our view of what property means and is? So I definitely think we need a different paradigm of property that prioritizes the stewardship and the care for something over the sort of despotic volition to do whatever. So this full total dominion is the juridical term. But I have no kind of triumphant pride of a critical theorist who wants to say everything else that you try will not, this is not good. You know, I prove to you how it's all bound to fail. I mean, I think it's not a situation we're in. It will be, I mean, at the moment, for instance, emissions are still rising every year. Like, I would love to have a capitalism that at least 
pretends to be green, then I will have a critique of how I think it will never manage to. But, you know, we're not even in that situation. It hasn't even been appropriated, our critique. So, um, and I do think about property rights. So we do need also drastic um, redistribution, like the inequality of wealth in the world at the moment is staggering. Like it's, it's far exceeding any feudal disparities. But we also, I think, could with sort of intermediate steps get used to a more caring attitude to objects. You could regulate properties so that, like, you know, slowly certain things become seen as absurd and and illegal and other things are encouraged. The trouble is, if you make those small changes, they usually seem to people as if you just lose freedom. I mean, already, you know, you cannot cut your tree in German law. You cannot cut the tree in your garden if it's bigger than 10 centimeters. But, you know, for a motorway, then whole forests get cut down. So there's such an absurdity of who can do what. And still, if you make a kind of those small reforms, you often breed a lot of resentment. I sometimes think if we did more drastic and courageous changes that really said, you might, nobody can use their property in a way that harms the common foundations of life. No, nobody can kind of even have property on things that are global commons. I think it would actually be easier to democratically de- decide on that than sm- piecemeal sort of, oh, you mustn't do this and you mustn't do that. But what have been developing the last 400 years is a little bit this concept of, as you mentioned in the beginning, like property is mine to do what I wish with. And the current clear-cut forestry, for example, the general outset is, of course, I have the right to clear-cut a whole forest and replant it with a monoculture that destroys biodiversity. That's my right. And any limitation to that right is a negative change to my freedom. How do you help this person to see that in the interest of general increased freedom, this is an illogical choice? (laughs) So also, I think there are many other people who should maybe be helped before that person um <laughs> but i i would start by pointing out that this notion of property came up in a world so lock over 300 years ago that had completely different assumptions about how our world was made up right the the concept of property that we have still enshrined in law and that i think also is indispensable for capitalism was built under the assumption that there's infinite space on like uncultivated space, A, on the surface. That was, of course, wrong then already. It already presupposed the um, dispossession of indigenous peoples. But there was this idea there's lots of unused land. It's not true at all anymore. And B, the second um, idea, cultivated land, the more intensively cultivated, the more productive. There was no idea that this, the kind of clear cutting in order to grow something or have a monoculture forest that grows faster, there was no understanding that that could, over a longer time period, lead to the degradation. And this is, I mean, Locke, Locke didn't know. And if you read him, he's very concerned about things going to waste and rotting. He just had, he just thought it's only perishable fruits that rot. He didn't think that land could go, um, could collapse. It was just not in the signs of the day, right? Plus, he thought the world was 6,000 years old and given to us by God, right? We, we, this was like, we now know it's over four and a half billion years old. Like there's a, so At least now, the majority knows that, yeah. Yes, that is also a problem. It depends on if, if the forest owner is also an evangelical 
Christian, then I would have a very different strategy than I would try to say what, mm. what incredible suffering to children in the future this will um, bring that there is no proper forest anymore. But, but also that often doesn't help because if people care about their, I mean, there are lots of children suffering now. If it doesn't move people to sort of live a more like accept justice, then I, I don't think why future generations should make them accept that unless they only think of their own grandchildren and that already um, presupposes a kind of division of the world to favor your own kind anyway so yeah that's that's what i would say that that we have to try to justify property rights with regard to what we know about our current world and i would also talk i mean you know a lot of the people who do damage also i mean i know farmers better than foresters i guess they're not like plowing the land because they they think it's great that they exert their power over it they know that they're dependent on certain subsidies that also require that you till the land that's dependent on, as you said, the, the very low price they get from the bank. So if you could kind of also restore some of their their pride over and their knowledge about the land and be like, okay, you're, you're relieved of all this. You don't need to sell anymore. What would be the best thing you do with your land? I think some people would actually make um, surprising turns. So those systemic pressures of competition that I spoke about earlier you need to lift them before you hold people accountable <laughs> for what they're doing. What would you say about the knowledge about um, like the understanding that if we give life more freedom, if we give biodiversity more space, if we give human interactions rather than transactions more space in our life, how would you talk about this as a freedom increasing force or is, is is this intuitively understood or do we need people help to guide this intellectual route? Yeah, I think sometimes people intuitively understand if you are surrounded by by kind of kindness and helpfulness, you feel much more free because you can trust that this might go on than if you're surrounded by resentful servants where if you stop paying attention, like to keep them dominated, they might rise against you, right? So there is a, and also with nature, if you are in a garden where things grow kind of somewhat also by themselves and where you don't have to all the time like fight off the next catastrophic whatever insect or like weather event, there is a, there is a certain sense of peace that I think has to do with freedom. But, and that's, of course, why in socialist tradition, we always say no one is free until all are. And if you show why that really is the case and not just a kind of moral law, then you have to say, well, that's because even those who dominate are not free because dominating is just one thing and just be being forced to keep doing the one thing isn't being free. And my specific turn would always be to say, look, think about it over a longer term think that you don't want to just now be free and do whatever you can with your will like that's as if you look geometrically like from a bird's eye view on that moment what can i do now okay can i cut it down no i can't cut it down whoa that's less freedom but if you think well how what would it take for you to stay free how like you can cut it down once then it's gone like you know how couldn't you think that every species of that forest that every uh, every kind of tree that grows is something you can interact with. There's so many more possibilities. Freedom is about possibility, right? So if you let other things live and let them live freely, you can continue to interact in all sorts of, sort of free ways with them. That seems to me to be a massive increase of freedom. 
And I, but I do think we have to, on the critical side, when I talked about property and I talked about this individual that owns themselves, that's of course a fiction. Nobody can survive by themselves. But the trouble is that modernity has not just made the natural world ownable, it has also made some people ownable or partly ownable, some of their time ownable to others. Often then also those people were associated with nature, not because they were, were sort of more natural than any other human animal, but because they were propertized. So was nature. So for the drastic case of course, slavery, where black people were really seen as proto-property and as ownable by people in chattel slavery. And also patriarchy has this effect that if she's not enslaved, then not the woman as a whole, but her reproductive capacity. So her, her the time that she puts into nurture, also actually under classical um, marriage law, her labor power and her own right to own property. They That's like a parcel that you get ownership over. It's really phrased in those terms, at least in the both the English common law and the Code Napoleon and as a husband. So you own parts. So we, or, And also it means women are partly ownable. And this kind of allows people to hide the dependency that they have on the outer world in a kind of, in the sovereignty. So I just own the woman, she's mine, so she cares for me, but I don't even need to admit that I'm dependent because it's almost like it's happening naturally or it's an aspect of that object that I own that I get looked after. And that makes none of the ends of this this relation happy, but it's kind of toxic and addictive and also maybe gives you the kind of fear that if that woman was free, she might not look after you anymore. And then who will? So, and same of if that piece of land, if you couldn't press all the productivity out of it anymore, maybe you might go bankrupt because nobody will help you then. It's capitalism, you know, somebody else takes over. So you have to, it's really deeply ingrained, this kind of possessiveness. In my work, I call when it's not actual dominion anymore, where you where the law gives you the right to own somebody else's time or, or even body, then there's still this kind of sense of entitlement. They call it phantom possession. Like it's almost like a phantom limb, you know? You, you, it's not there, but you feel the pain. So it's phantom domination. You, you're not actually entitled anymore to rule in that way over another person, but you still feel this urge to control. And a lot of what we see and sort of, yeah, so the Me Too movement and, and, in the kind of pervasive um, racism in, in white societies, also in Europe, especially then anti-immigrant racism as well, like where you have this idea as if some people were allowed to decide where other people should be. Like, you know, it's like, like an object that you put on this shelf or camp or that shelf. Like there is this, this very ingrained urge to dominate that I call phantom possession. And that's, that's mistaken as freedom. And it's, I mean, that's actually unfreedom because it, it ties you to a, a kind of hollow usurpation of other people's lives. It makes you totally dependent. Also, fortunately, then you, it is very shaky now because there is lots of counter organization, but that's, yeah, that's also a force one has to reckon with. And so if you want to go back to this guy who was cut down or it might be a woman, her forest, it depends on whether if she's really only seeking profit, then ease the competition and she'll probably treat the land much better. But if she also has a kind of fantasy of sovereign control and thinks her freedom is only proven if she can really treat this forest as if it were dead, then it's difficult and you just need to build a lot of counter power. And 
I mean, sometimes maybe people feel that I have lost control, I've lost power in the society, and at least this I control. So this will to dominate this remaining part is kind of yeah. a kind of a illogical compensation for loss of a perceived power. Is that also a factor? Yes, I mean, you know, I come from the Frankfurt School tradition, partly in my thinking, and that one of the key theoretical ingredients is ideology. So what we have to explain is why a lot of people who don't even fully benefit from the, the um, societies we live in still uphold them. And I think the property regime, a lot of people buy into it because it at least offers them this consoling fantasy that there might be something that they get that they can hold on to. And it's it's often very dark, you know, like it's often also then it shifts, for instance, in South Africa at the end of apartheid, the rate of femicides and domestic violence in white families extremely increased. And you could sort of see that a certain entitlement. It wasn't like an actual process where it's kind of worked through that you go beyond domination. It's kind of just shifted to another site then because there wasn't the kind of hyper-exploited black community to absorb that violence. It kind of went somewhere else. And I think in neoliberalism, there is, of course, a general sense of this possession and also it's a very real so and there i would say it like in the south african example it's kind of one type of phantom possession gets translated by another phantom possession it's kind of rotten all the way down but in our current world if you think about material property like if people have a house they can't be sure anymore that it won't like be hit by natural so-called now we know it's not entirely nature produced disaster so there is and with an ever kind of um, more, ever faster global competition, you also don't know, and inflation, you don't know whether your wage will pay for your for life in a few years. So there, there is a, also acute justified pain of dispossession and, and uncontrollability that then makes certain ideological domains of sort of fantasy control so attractive. And I think that's why we have to give each other real security right we need to actually fix the world we need to kind of stop that competition we need to promise each other that if one house gets flooded you share the other house like then that would be the antidote and and not the kind of hollow what i often call it a kind of compensation of the property less by the powerless so that you get the kind of hollow control over another group that is designated as inferior and as kind of ownable by you capitalism of course always has used this ideological control over certain and like devalued groups to keep its people kind of on its side. That's ideology. But also you mentioned before, like the feeling and sense of security in the neoliberal and capitalist logic, you, it's more like transaction between objects and people rather than actually interdependence and relations. And for real security to happen, as you mentioned, like we are interdependent of both each other and nature. How is that possible to ingrain in the current economic agenda, so to speak? Well, in the current economic agenda, it's not possible, I guess. <laughs> <laughs> um, I mean, I think it's possible to ingrain or to see it sprouting in the resistance or in certain interstices of the current economical agenda. So one thing that especially feminist Marxists often point out is that, of course, this whole world, this whole system would kind of fly apart instantaneously 
if there wasn't certain forms of unpaid care labor and also just like little bits of human kindness you know that and and also bits of like maintenance and and sort of looking after infrastructures that isn't fully enforced like just that people don't all dump their rubbish everywhere as soon as somebody doesn't look like there are certain things that we might not even think of that come from human decency that make this life livable but what we see is that more and more time is propertized so that it can be kind of absorbed by the market and and used for something that becomes a paid transaction and that you can kind of buy your wellness and not rely on some free time that you actually spend in a good environment with nice people that also have free time. But there is always a kind of substance of society that is caring and reproducing. Otherwise, nothing would live. And my, my argument in the New Freedom book is that when we talk about nature, I think we should call it regeneration rather than reproduction because it's not intentional. Like the tree doesn't be like, oh, I want to make oxygen to, to allow humans to breathe. It's just that's that's its life. It just lives and then we can live. Like it, it, that's because we have a kind of long history of evolution that we share and this beautiful 12,000 years of Holocene where all this kind of richness and abundance of with many, many different ecosystems develop. So I think that's something we see and that capitalism also depends on that as a whole. And some forms of resistance these days are very much, I think, centered around an awareness of exhaustion. So this whole wave, of course, we also see, and that's great, more unionized struggles, but there's also this whole wave of, of quitting and quiet quitting and, and like people just walking out of their jobs. And I also see it with younger people also in sort of very privileged context in academia that Suddenly, this whole promise that, yes, you burn yourself out now, but then you get the status later. It, people don't buy it anymore. You know, there is a kind of fleeing to regeneration or feeling like if I don't get enough sleep now, I'll never catch up. And then extreme forward, that is the lying flat movement in China where young people really opt out of this whole kind of promise. And it's really the promise, you know, it took to get a family home, to have a family and have a car, to work your way up, to have a job, to stay with that company, to be like, no, I just, I don't get up anymore. Like I sleep and that's, I stay on a friend's sofa and I sleep. That also is protest, not just what we do screaming in the street. On Passan, you mentioned about the tree that was growing and then weakening. I think that's kind of an interesting aspect because even if the tree's life force is weakening, it becomes home for hundreds of new species that increases life and, and strength. So maybe we could see a, yeah. each other a little bit about the tree. That Like life, my life is not only my life, it's part of a bigger context. And it's very important you bring it up because people often accuse me of being too romantic about nature, like as if like everything just beautifully goes together and there wasn't any death. And of course there is death. That's the whole thing. Like humans need to except finally except their own finitude and of course there's also finitude in nature a tree eventually dies but unlike the systems that we have set up that produce destructive toxic ways that like lots of things will also outlive me that will destroy other life the way that a tree dies it produces lots of things that allows and enables other life and that feed into other life cycles and i I think having an awareness of something with such integrity survives you is the best consolation we can get. I also think we shouldn't be 
too quick with it. Like I sometimes hear people like, oh, well, yeah, everything get compost and eventually we compost. And isn't that great? I mean, death is hard. Like human death, we have an idea or notion of time and projects and planning that I would think a tree has not. Um, and that doesn't make the tree, I mean, humans are not that great. I, I don't think it's an insult to the tree. I think rather it's insulting if you want to make everything in the natural world like us. Like the tree has a is this kind of very dignified way of being involved in lots of cycles of life. But still, the death of the human has another tragedy to it than the death of a tree. But yet, find consolation in the way in which our creaturely life is like the tree, that it can rot in a good way also. And then, yeah, life goes on. It's beautiful. So let's say now our listeners follow your thought here. They think, yeah, that's a good idea. We should redefine what freedom is. What kind (laughs) of policy steps would the EU need to take? What could be the first little steps on this route to redefine the concept of freedom? This will sound very counterintuitive after I said it's about freedom to stay and temporal freedom, but I think the first policy step the EU has to take is to say, we open the borders unconditionally. Everybody who wants to live here and believes in our societies is welcome. That's actually the strength. That's amazing. I mean, that people still believe in any political promise but then of course we have to share resources very justly we have to make everyone safe we also like need to think what to do with areas where then maybe suddenly less people live and even in europe we need to make sure to reforest lots of things so i think we the second or simultaneous step would be to fix the global food system so europe will have to abandon this absurd mice biofuel biofuel growing have more wind and and offshore energy, but also save energy overall drastically, then use some of that land for kind of very local food sovereignty, um, allowing farming and community-supported agricultures, but also reforest some bits to make sure that habitats stay healthy over a long time, rewild bits, see how the global food chain is balanced, how we obviously immediately stop importing anything that partakes in the destruction, not just of the rainforest, the Amazon, also mangrove forests, and obviously forbid any farming that isn't ecological farming. Yeah. And I mean, I think that's easy for me to say. I don't think it will work because people have, for instance, a phantom possession that makes them think their country shouldn't be, it's their country, it's a property, it shouldn't be allowed people to come in. That was a nice case of mind reading because I was actually wanting to go back to the phantom possession logic. Like, Uh how would you then deal with people's conception of phantom possession? And not only about the people feeling entitled by it, but also the people's victim of us because some people accept or at least subjugate to their role in the phantom possession structure. How can we like liberate both sides from this logic? Well, I do think people are very struck by both kindness and justice. So what we haven't tried in the whole energy crisis now, for instance, is to ration energy in an egalitarian way. So we have all those kind of tinkering with caps and or lowering the overall price. But then if you are a millionaire with a big house, then you get also that reduction. But if you just said everybody gets the same, and by the way, those people who arrived here newly, they also get to say, 
but everybody gets the same and you can trust that nobody has more. And actually then with the toy, I love this example with energy. I actually live in a very big old house shared with friends. I would freeze. I actually freeze now. It's great. It's my choice. Like I want to have a palace. I get like so and so many kilowatt hours of heating. I can decide to freeze a bit more. I'm actually super happy with that. Somebody who lives with a big family in a small flat, they will have a warm and cozy, you know. <laughs> that would be, have been possible. We didn't do that. And um, that's actually another the German economist, Ulrike Hermann, who wrote about the post-war British economy of rationing and how that is actually an example. And I think that could be an important intermediate step that makes people aware that there is a finite set of resources, but if it's shared really, like all the things that you need for basic life, if that's shared evenly, it does give you a certain, you can kind of relax from all the competition. You, and if you trust that this is how it will go on, then also you don't have this anxiety that you might be the one who, because you did something wrong, like then you lose your house or you, you can't heat your heating bill and somebody else can. I mean, some of the racism is also fueled anyway in a competitive society where the more people there are, you feel like the more you can lose because they're the, the same also with like integrating women in the workforce. If all it means is that there's more competition, you kind of give no one a break. So you have to create areas and I would say living, eating, housing, and heating are areas where they just should be, shouldn't be dependent on how you stand in competition. It's like you're a human you got to have a shelter. Many people talk about basic income, but when you talk about the duration of electricity, that would be like a basic electricity income to everybody yeah. has the right. Yeah, and with the basic income, I think there's a huge problem if you keep that kind of global division of labor that we have, yeah. where our cheap consumer goods um, depend on, on terrible exploitative conditions, both economically and ecologically elsewhere, then somehow it's... Uh, you're cheating, you know. I mean, it's still great to allow, as long as you have nation states, then sure. But, and also, that's the kind of population whose data traces that they leave on the internet are also valuable, you know. Then you have free time, you just surf around, you get targeting advertisement, and you buy the stuff that is produced under terrible conditions elsewhere. Like, somehow, this, I think this isn't scalable in the way that egalitarian distribution is. However, I do think. It's rationing is always a kind of crisis and emergency measure. What we really need is to restructure the core bits of economy. And the fact that in under COVID, we haven't even started anywhere doing that with the health system, I think gives us very dire prospects of how little political will there is to democratize and, and socialize those life-sustaining areas and then run them not for profit, but run them need-oriented and in a kind of caring way. And that you're saying mental health crisis, you know, so there's so much need for repair and help, even in so-called very privileged societies. You know? There's so much despair also of people who have kind of, in some sense, good prospects in life comparatively, but if only comparatively, like, and still like the, the, there's terrible waiting lists for um, therapy places, you know, like, in the UK now you don't even it's very hard to even get into the hospitals because you have like you have four hours average that you call an ambulance. In which way does neoliberal economy and capitalist economy affect this sentiment? Well I think that this is a kind of queer link as in the, the dialectical opposite. So neoliberalism is the ideology that ever more things should be run on market principles. 
and that individual responsibility and competition are good ways to order a society. It's kind of hiding all the dependencies that we have. So if you stop hiding them, you say the individual isn't responsible, then the political collective is and has to take democratic decisions of how, yeah, how, for instance, we want to run a health system, how we want to run an elderly care system so that everyone can feel that they're essential and essential to everyone, not just sort of lonely, um, self-owning, cut-out bits of person. So in a neoliberal system, like you slash the funding for healthcare, and at the same time you put the individual responsible for the lack of healthcare because you gave them an opportunity to have a choice that wasn't real but fake, then you start to have this process of you put the blame on yourself for your ailments yeah. rather than the poor organization of society. Yeah, and think you should have gone running more or something. And also you feel terrible then if whatever your family faces is an unlivable choice between either, if you're an old person, for instance, either looking after you besides their work or um, letting you abandoning you in a family-funded care home. It's kind of no surprise that people are nervous and afraid because so many of the social democratic gains of security, of social welfare, have been cut or undermined. The official promise of security is one that where security comes after property. Like part of the promise is pro- property is like it's yours and then, you know, you got to be secured for the future. You have it and then you, you are safe. But it's, I think we need to think about what deprofitized security would be, what security would be that doesn't go through that channel of individual ownership, but then goes through the channel of collective solidarity. How do we help people to feel secure in the transition? Yeah. So, A, I would always, again, stress to, for how few people that is the case, right? It's, I mean, it's mostly only working anymore if you actually inherit the property, like the whole, like the whole meritocracy of working hard and then you can afford a house and then it's over. And I think a lot of people who inherit also have uneasy feelings about it because they know there is a weird, like, they haven't earned it in a way and also then they get attacked all the time and people criticize them for it. It's not their fault. But one of the ways that I think about social change is I call it interstitial change. So that sometimes every even radical shift starts with things that at first seem like anomalies, like something weird, something dis- like that doesn't fit, something that you might not even like. It's just it's kind of a disturbing factor. And it's kind of small context in which something new gets tried out. And I think if social movements manage to open a space for this thought of actually preserving life and regenerating life rather than owning and destroying it, that's not nothing. I do think it can reach and convince people. And if it doesn't, then sometimes that's a lot of weakness of the theory. It's a problem with the world, you know. It doesn't mean that I should stop trying. I mean, people have tried to make change before and sometimes successfully and sometimes not. Your book talked about kind of revolutionary change and then actually I think I should ask you to define what revolution is Uh then because many people have a misconception or at least a different conception of it. Yeah, that's a bit more in my older work that for me... I think we can't like just drop the notion of revolution 
because it's too bloody or because we don't like some of the militant fantasy attached to it because it just is the word we have for the maximal range of change. It's just the most far-reaching concept that we have for transformation. And also it's a concept that since the French Revolution at least designates that that change can be human, like man-made. It's like, it's not something that happens by fate. It's something that we make. And you need it. I think we don't even understand what politics is if we don't have that concept. Everything that we value now, human rights, democracy, came about. It's born, it's made by revolution. Like that's how it came about. It's not somehow slowly um, emerged by consensus and convincing even the last sort of um, feudal lord that it would be a nice idea to have um, human rights. But at the same time, I think it's a real misconception if when we say revolution, we always think of the Bastille and some kind of one big event and singular, like you storm something, especially for the problems that we have now, where it feels as though getting state power, which is what those imaginaries of storming the Winter Palace or storming the Bastille are about, would even not do very much because there's all the kind of international network of the, the economy, there's all the global range of markets, there's the ecological destruction. What do you store? So I think even for something like the French Revolution, a very classical model of revolution, a better way to understand it is to see how it's actually a very long process where new practices, in the case of the French Revolution, also of popular sovereignty. So founding clubs, founding societies, this, discussing village matters, having um, those complaint lists before the French Revolution, lots of little practices that sort of add up to suddenly a new paradigm. And if you ask me, I define revolution, I would say that something that was unthinkable before becomes the new matter of course, like the thing that you don't even notice because it's so like ubiquitous. So for instance, something like the idea that, that we have human rights is something that, you know, in a feudal system, it would just be, it's, it's unintelligible. And then now that's politics. Like we, it's even hard to think about politics as something else as, okay, what rights should something have? And that's at the moment where now at that framework of politics, it's reaching a real limit because the natural world and the regenerative capacity of e both ecosystems and humans, it's not something that you can easily put into a right. And I would, of course, say rights themselves kind of are derived from property. It's an analogy to you can own something and I'll just thing, and then kind of progressive um, liberal politics say, well, but you also own your freedom. You have a right. And then freedom of opinion and religion and certain things that nobody can mess with, you know, it can't interfere. And yeah, then of course it was great compared to a situation where you had um, religious civil wars and all that, not that they've gone away entirely at all, um, but this will not help you transition into kind of sharing of time with a forest where, where like your time <laughs> is, your life freedom is enhanced. So yeah, that's why I think we need to look what current social movements, they're kind of laboratories for far-reaching new ideas. And then once you've discerned them, you will also see that they've been around for a long time. And it's not new. It's definitely not something that America came up with the idea that you could deprivatize social relations. You know, it's a lot of anti-colonial struggle for hundreds of years has tried that. But I think the fact that so many social movements at present actually talk about life, and it's interesting. Like there is a shift. Right. It's not civil rights. It's also not primarily at first redistribution, but there is a rich understanding of entangled, precarious lives 
sort of with a deep understanding of which lives are affected more by those two cuts, you know, of capitalism that's washing in, in half and encircling the Black Lives Matter as a, a Latin American feminism, where the, the, it always starts from a particular type of death dealings, for instance, femicides, but then it has this positive notion of we want ourselves alive, alive, free and debt free, is what, what Neo Namenos often says. And now this breathtakingly and courageous and impressive, it's really humbling to watch the Iranian revolution unfold, right? And they, they have that Kurdish feminist slogan, um, woman, life, freedom, which also has the has life in there. Like the freedom is not that we can deal death. The freedom is we live in from that life. If you open it to other lives in the right way, it can become free. Maybe it's a relief to some people that the revolution is not necessarily picking up a pitchfork and storming the Bastille, but actually, like it's a process that starts yeah. early with cooperation, with understanding of the oppressive systems, and so on. But what makes a revolution successful? We saw a lot of the revolutions in 1848 that started with, you know, the potato pests and, and the rye failure and then people got starvation and then suddenly groups with different interests helped each other out. So like the the economically poor fought together with the liberal rights-focused people in the cities and they managed to overturn it, but they lost. The, the old monarchy powers came back in, in Germany, in Italy and in, and in France and so on. They, 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 they had a counter power and not only in Europe, like the the East Indian company who really owned and run India at the time, they, they they had a revolution there too, but it also failed. And the same in the Taiping revolution in China. You had all these revolutions. You had groups of people. You had nationalists. You had economically poor. You had liberals. Everybody like knew this is, system is wrong and we need have a common enemy. But how do you make it successful afterwards? Like the transition doesn't benefit your new oppressive regime or group. Um, several things to say about that. Um it's interesting you bring up 1848 because one of the ways in which revolutions failed there was already something that I think you could call right-wing populism, like, for instance, appealing to kind of nationalist phantom possession and a kind of common, very undifferentiated, but kind of entitlement that then was used to squash the more far-reaching radical hopes um, and the democratic hopes. And that brings me to the second thing. I feel there is sometimes a misconception you know social change or a revolution is not horse betting so it might be that the concept of revolution you have still is is not very likely to win like you don't choose the transformation project like if i was going to bet my money i'm probably going to bet it on fascism at the moment but then but that's not a i mean let's hope you lose your money then (laughs) (laughs) yes exactly so make me lose my money right that's what anyway i want you know anyway i want to lose my money because i want to have a like socialist revolution but you need to decide what you do with your life and the one of the scarcest resources in neoliberalism and on a dying planet is living a meaningful life i mean people crave meaning and sense and and you, you know, the more you realize that also you will die and those you love will also die, like what you do with that time, something meaningful. And so I do think that's maybe a better way to say why one should live a life of care and solidarity rather than one of property and entitlement, because it's it's meaningful and you'll also feel it even if you lose we always in Western society kind of tend to look at the end result and not the journey. And if the purpose yeah. is a meaningful life, doing meaningful things gives you kind of sentiment of well-being 
even if the ultimate struggle fails during your generation, it's still giving you a good life. Yeah, it's giving you, it's also giving you a hard life, but it's giving you the right life. Yeah, a meaningful life, a life that you would want to live again or that you think could be an example for somebody else to live. That's a big race. <laughs> sort of your circumstances allow that to you. Yeah, there is also a way in which the model of solidarity is the right model also in catastrophe or in losing. So best idea is to cooperate and, and share and try to regenerate, try to see and kind of help um, ecosystems rebalance and, and see what can stabilize and in, in what ways, what can be protected, what can be um, transformed. Well, thank you so much. Yeah, thanks you.